Welcome to the Smart Talk series, a Henry George School of Social Science podcast. The Smart Talk series is a weekly podcast with an array of discussions held with academics, policymakers, practitioners, and other professionals to explore new ideas and theories within the economics field. Since we finished our annual conference content, we will now transition back to our archives content and discuss economic mobility in America. Our conversation was recorded in September of 2014 between our former president, Andrew Mazzoni, and Dr. George R. Tyler. Dr. Tyler's career began as an economic advisor to Senator Hubert Humphrey and Lloyd Benson. He was appointed to the role of Deputy Treasury Assistant Secretary by Bill Clinton, and in 1995 became a senior official at the World Bank. In 1997, Tyler founded a real estate investment firm to help build homes in Virginia. We were lucky enough to talk with Mr. Tyler about the post-World War II dynamic between firms and communities, the German co-determination system of governance, and the purchasing power of minimum wage across the world. We hope you enjoy this talk, and please make sure to check back on our page every week for a brand new episode. My first question, of course, is uh, uh, coming off the Roosevelt era, uh, the World War that we, we won, uh, the manufacturing apparatus that we had intact that threw off jobs at all levels for all people, the learning by doing skills, the massive firepower and wealth this country created up until the 1970s, and then what went wrong? Well, Andrew, uh, thanks very much for having me. Uh, what went wrong was that the lessons that we had taken out of World War II on how to, uh, to have a functioning economy that produces a, a, a wide broadcasting of the gains from growth, we, uh, we forgot those lessons as we got into the 1980s. When we came out of World War II, there was a sense of uh, camaraderie between uh, people who ran companies and their employees. They shared cockpits and uh, foxholes, and there was a sense of uh, paternalism in a way in American corporations. That meant that uh, wage gains were uh, pretty broadly spread. The gains from productivity growth were enjoyed both by uh, employers and employees. Um, in addition, there was a there was a, there were a series of administrations, starting with uh, Truman and on through Eisenhower and the uh, Kennedys and 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 even through Nixon that were quite sympathetic to middle class prosperity. They were sympathetic to uh, labor unions. They were sympathetic to uh, wage agreements struck between the big employers and and unions becoming templates for wage settlements across the economy. The, uh, the entire environment changed in the, in the 70s, ended in the 1980s, began. And it was almost a perfect storm. Um, what happened was, uh, was this. In, in Washington, the Reagan administration came to town. There were a lot of folks like James Watt who were coming to Washington just to help their former employers and they were intending to go back there. They were figuring out ways to reduce regulation, 
to uh, try to increase profits. There were uh, folks who were uh, not sympathetic, or even hostile to labor unions, including uh, Ronald Reagan himself, who took quite a partisan attitude towards uh, unions who helped his political opponents. He was a former labor man, Ronald Reagan. That's correct. Um, there was a, uh, a change in, uh, in, in executive suites and corporations. In the uh, post-war era, as I said, there had been a spirit of uh, camaraderie of, of sharing the gains from growth, but there was a change in attitude. Uh, some people attribute it to, to Ayn Rand and her, her notion of uh, rational selfishness, but the corporate executives came to uh, view their role more as increasing profits to shareholders rather than the post-war attitude of uh, stakeholder capitalism. All right, George, let me interject there because uh, I was a corporate executive during that uh, period. And of course, uh, all that you said was, was our attitude. But let me jump out of that mindset and go back to 1942 to a meeting, I think it was at uh, American Planners meeting, and it may have been at the Treasuries in, in, in 1942, where it was decided that uh, to prevent future world wars, which were quite catastrophic, that, uh, that the United States would take the lead in, in breaking up autarkic growth. For example, the United States grew to, a, to be a monster basically with you know, tariffs and, and not really practicing free trade. England grew to a monster before that and then practiced free trade. And then Germany, of course, was trying to muscle into that, into that system and two world wars kept them out, but the United States planners had decided, and I, I think this is a, the fact, that to build a post-war, that they could not have one center unilaterally dominating everything else, that uh, especially in the face of communism, that they needed a bulwark and they needed to share the gains and they would rebuild Germany and China, hopefully at the time, although it turned out to be Japan, and they would allow them to build up and be centers of capitalism and therefore, in doing that and sharing technology, it was felt that America could maintain its lead and continue to go up the food chain, but that they would allow the lower or lesser industries to go offshore. Now, that being the case, if that were somewhat true, and I was a member of the military and finance here, I could look at that as wonderful, it's fine, I'm okay with that, even if I have to arbitrage American workers' gains and middle-class gains away to, because of an equalization around the world, it would make for a stabler world all around. And yes, maybe America keep, could keep up. I'm taking an alternate view here. Maybe America could keep up. Maybe it could keep its technology going. But if not, if the working class was pushed down a little bit, it isn't so bad since we're, we're looking at a, a world system now. We're looking at a system where the gains can be taken and investments made all over and, and you don't have the need of one country to dominate and push like Germany did into the world and try to create autarkic growth on its own. And so if you look at it from that way, what has happened now, it, it may be bad for American middle and working class people, but for let's say the Boston, Washington, New York set of very bright people who basically make their living with finance, military, uh, technology, it's not so bad a world for them. So I give you a contrary thesis 
I agree with what you say, but I say if what I say has some partial truth, then let's comment into that about what went wrong. Or, or just say what I said is not true. Well, I'm not so sure it's, uh, how accurate that is. I do know that there was a great concern about building strong middle classes in, in, uh, in, in Germany, in Japan, and, and across Europe, devastated by the war as part of our efforts to fight the Cold War that followed immediately. And so we were concerned, yes, about uh, uh, making sure that uh, the industrial bases in Germany and Japan and, and, and Europe built up pretty quickly. And part of that required uh, not only help from the US in terms of a Marshall Plan, but also making sure that they had markets for their commodities. We certainly wanted to avoid the problems we had after World War One. Uh, that Keynes uh, wrote and spoke about so so eloquently. The, uh, the the irony is that as a consequence of uh, of our concerns to rebuild the German economy, and particularly after World War II, that the Brits and us uh, set in place what's become one of the two most important post-war institutions in capitalism, which is uh, co-determination. We were quite concerned with the, uh, the white collar workforce in the German industrial base that had just fought the war. A lot of them were Nazi sympathizers. We certainly didn't want to empower them, but we did want a strong industrial base coming out uh, to, to help fight the Cold War. So what we decided to do was to put employees on the boards of these uh, German corporations as a way to uh, corral and to monitor the behavior of, uh, of the executive. That's called co-determination. And uh, it turned out it, it started in the coal and, and uh, iron ore industries and expanded from there to uh, now encompass just about every sector of the German economy. And every uh, nameplate German company that you can think of and, and a lot that you're not aware of uh, have employees representing half of their corporate boards, Volkswagen to uh, Siemens to uh, Daimler. All of these companies have uh, have gone to co-determination and it was a consequence of our efforts uh, in the years immediately after World War II to build them up. And a part of that though was to, to help the middle class. And that that, that occurred quite successfully here where, as in Europe, about half or even two-thirds of the gains each year in productivity were uh, reflected in uh, real wage gains, gains that were above the rate of inflation. Now, economies can grow only as fast as their rate of productivity increases, and that usually uh, varies from 1% to 3% a year. <clears throat> the um, what has happened since the 1980s has been uh, a sharp decline in the share of productivity growth going to to uh, to wages. Why? What, what actually happened in the 1980s was this: there was a, as I said, there was a new uh, administration that came to Washington that was not sympathetic to middle class prosperity. They didn't increase uh, minimum wages even. 
And uh, at the same time, there was this transition in the attitude of, uh, of, of executive suites. Uh, and is exemplified perhaps by uh, Jack Welch, who was voted not only a manager of a decade, he was the CEO of GE at the time, the largest American uh, corporation. Uh, but he was uh, Fortune nominated, uh, decided that he was uh, manager of the century. So this was a person that most uh, uh, of the American management class looked up to. And he said that uh, the only role of corporations is to increase profits to reward shareholders. Well, why wouldn't that have occurred in Germany? Why wouldn't that same kind of phenomenon occur in Germany? Why in the United States? I mean, Reagan got elected. Go ahead. By the 1980s, there was in place uh, a system built on co-determination where middle-class prosperity was much more uh, embraced by institutions in the country. That did not happen here. Uh, another problem here was that economists, at least conservative economists like Milton Friedman, decided that uh, American corporations should focus just on, on profits as well. Oh, and another factor was the advent of stock options. Stock options have been around for quite a while, but in 1980s, in the 1980s, they came into their own and American executive suites in a New York minute realized the potential personally of stock options. All they had to do was to uh, fill up their corporate boards with cronies and other CEOs, have them create a compensation structure where the reward of, of the executives, particularly CEOs, was linked to their rise and profits in the next quarter or the next uh, six months or a year. That changed the dynamic in corporations dramatically. It introduced what economists have ever since lamented as short-termism. Economists uh, uh, all across the spectrum, from Edmund uh, Phelps to, uh, to Paul Krugman. The goal of executive suites in America became maximizing near-term profit. Now that means, Andrew, that everything is your enemy. Foreign companies, firms in this country, financial uh, analysts in New York, your suppliers, your employees, everyone is an enemy. Anything that takes money out of the corporate revenue stream, away from profits, harms, directly harms the personal uh, prosperity of CEOs. Now, what that means as a number of implications, the most prominent one is the one that we're discussing, which is the compression of wages and, and the stagnation of the American middle class actually is strong because corporations benefit directly, the executive suite does, from compressing wages. That also means companies are going to offshore jobs. It's cheaper, as uh, Apple has, has shown, to produce uh, goods in, in low-wage countries. They'll do that. They'll uh, give up a quite valuable American job in exchange. That's called offshoring. Uh, other implications are they don't like R&D. R&D that doesn't yield benefits for 5 or 10, 15 years ahead is a waste of money. That's money that should instead go down to the bottom line. Near-term R&D is fine, but the time horizon of American executives has shrunk quite considerably. In addition, they don't like investment. Investment has the same 
stability that the wages and R&D do. If uh, you, the money you put aside for investments each year doesn't pay off for two or three or four years, the CEO may be gone. Uh, and it certainly is reducing near-term profits. So that's why American companies have increasingly since the 80s underinvested compared to firms in Northern Europe. Okay, well, let me interject. Let me interject right there so we have a... Uh, yeah, let me make little... one more thought on this. Okay, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. Uh, they've also underinvested compared to privately managed, privately held U.S. corporations. You stop and think for a moment, publicly held corporations are run differently than privately held corporations whose shareholders are interested in the longer term. They're interested in providing prosperity for, I suppose, family members or whoever the, their narrow base of shareholders are. They invest at twice the rate of American public corporations. Okay, let me, let me say this. If I'm an American policy planner and I'm looking at the geopolitics of this strategy, I have to know that not investing in R&D, outsourcing my manufacturing, I'm going to lose tremendous learning by doing uh, gains. I'm going to cut off the job creation base. I'm going to have to go into debt to make up the purchasing power. I am going to, in effect, starve my industrial base uh, to no good end, ultimately, and uh, in, in effect, I'm, I'm ready, in, a, in, in effect, to move my base of operation to international world, not really caring about a national world here, because I know what the implications of, of what you say are. America became dominant in between 1800 and 1900 by basically building up its manufacturing. It's learning by doing spillovers. It's uh, creating a huge internal market. Uh, it had high wages so because you had the open frontiers. It knew what to do to create an industrial base, and now you're discussing, and I agree with you, a, a strategy that essentially is no good for American workers and middle class people, but may be good for the world in general if you say, I can operate and run the world in general. I'm basically a New York, Washington, Boston, Rome, if so to speak. I have people from all over the world here working in the levers of control, finance, military, science. Why wouldn't I like this for me here in, a, in, in this small, narrow segment? And why would I worry about uh, the rest of America or Canada, for that matter, simply since they're part of the overall world? Some people in the world will do good. Some people will do better. Some people will do worse. And I'm okay with that. What would you say about people who thought like that? Well, that's certainly been, uh, that certainly captures much of the attitude of, uh, of, of executive suites in this uh, country who have uh, become quite uh, globalized and they, they think broadly. Give you kind of an alternate way of looking at it. If I were an investment bank here in New York, I'm okay with this. Well, uh, yes, I agree. And we have... Uh, a political system that uh, that allows their opinion to uh, to weigh heavily. Let, let me let me put a couple of numbers on these trends I've been talking about. Um, we have ended up with wages these days that are about ten dollars an hour lower in the purchase power parity terms. That is the most appropriate term 
from wages in Australia and Northern Europe. In the manufacturing sector, we pay about $20 an hour or less than German manufacturing firms do. Uh, but these countries haven't suffered from having these higher wages. But the U.S. has become, in, in the perspective abroad, of, of a, a low-wage country. Now, that reflects what has been the uh, largest income redistribution in world history since the 70s, where about a five percentage point change in the share of national income going to wages uh, has occurred with the gain going into profit. Now, as I say, that's the largest income redistribution in history from, uh, from employees to, to corporate profit. Put that in perspective, OPEC, the uh, Organization of Petroleum Exporting Countries, each year earns about uh, one, about one and a half times the amount of money that we're talking about each year that is now being redistributed just in America from wage earners to corporate profit. All right. Well, the question is, why did that trend accelerate and continue to this day? Why did the Germans be, prevent that and we cannot? Well, what happened in, uh, in, in, in Germany, in Northern Europe, and in Australia is that there was a consensus that emerged after 10 or 20 years where uh, wages, real wages, were, were continued to rise. And there was a consensus that emerged that this was a desirable system and voters there have continued it. They've insisted that uh, elected leaders continue not only co-determination, but what is the other uh, pillar of uh, the modern uh, capitalist state and other countries, which is the Australian wage determination system. The problem with America is that we did not have institutions that were put in place after World War II to ensure that either co-determination or the Australian wage determination mechanism existed here. Those, they didn't exist. And so when uh, folks came to Washington and and uh, took over the, much of the apparatus of, of government, we ended up with uh, a change in, in, in the system that we'd had for, for the 10, 20, 30 years after World War II that had produced the largest middle class in history. We didn't have any, any uh, bulwarks against that occurring. And so we've gone since then in a different direction than the rest of the uh, and most of the, uh, of the balance of rich democracies. Their wages have continued to go up year after year. Even in recent years with the global financial crisis, the uh, share of productivity gains in Northern Europe has uh, been about 60 or 65% has gone into wages. The rest goes to, to owners of capital to, to management. Same thing in Australia. The... Uh, the difficulty is that in this country, we now have uh, two major barriers to economic reform. One's called the status quo bias, and the other is the income bias, the status quo bias in government and the architecture of our government. 
and the income bias uh, in the electorate. All right, let me ask you this. Americans, of course, during this period would, saw some of this coming, and they were, in effect, promised knowledge-centered jobs. Uh, service industries, I think uh, Robert Reich called it uh, idea jobs or thinking jobs or service jobs, that we were somehow exceptional and that we would do the thinking for the rest of the world. And, uh, and therefore, manufacturing as a source of predictable gains was really unnecessary. Why would the American people have bought that story? We have a, an amazingly innovative sector in this economy, but the difficulty is that as Apple exemplifies, when jobs are created, they're created overseas, and much of the, uh, the increase in prosperity as a consequence of those innovations don't flow broadly into the economy. You have firms like Apple that take advantage of the education base here, the uh, amazingly uh, broad venture capital industry, higher education, and much of the uh, benefit, though, doesn't reflow to America, doesn't go back to America. One of the, another one of the consequences of this uh, post-war shift is that uh, not only have the executive uh, salaries soared, creating the, uh, uh, the issue of uh, widening income disparities, which is quite prominent, We've also had a decline in economic mobility in America, which peaked in the early 80s and has diminished since. And what that means is much more difficult for Americans, particularly Americans in uh, the lower earning quintile, the working class and, and poor Americans, to advance themselves with their own uh, ability and skills. Uh, one example is that a, a youngster, a son born into a family in the lowest quintile of American income, which is the lowest 20%, has a 43% probability of ending up as an adult in that same uh, lowest quintile. In a country like Denmark, the same uh, son would have uh, only a 25% chance of ending up in the lowest earning quintile. That means the mobility in countries like Denmark is higher. Uh, youngsters can make their own way through their grid and skill to become prosperous, and it's much more uh, difficult here. Uh, turning to income disparity, the income disparity in this country has become quite, quite, uh, quite skewed and is the worst of all the rich democracies. We have an income disparity if you're looking at the, uh, the mean or the average income of the top 10% and the bottom 10%, the income of the top 10% is about 16 times larger than the average income of the bottom uh, 10%. Now, that's a, a level of income disparity that's comparable to Turkey, and it's a fair part uh, on the way to Mexico, and it's about twice as severe as the rest of, uh, of the rich democracy. But that, 40 years ago, that was nowhere near the case. Well, 40 years ago, it was not the case. That's correct. So what can we do as Americans to recover, uh, basically, the opportunities that we once had, in your opinion? It begins with uh, resolving the political inequities that we have in this country, which are responsible for the economic inequities. 
You don't think the economics drove the political. You think the political drove the economics here. Yes, that's correct. Sure. It, it was the failure of our, of our political institution to preserve the uh, mechanism, the gains that we had in creating the middle class in the post-war years. Uh, it was their failure to, to continue to, to play a role in the years since that have caused this widening income disparity. Well, the American voter, the American voter would not have noticed this change, or else he or she would not have allowed this to happen. Yes oh, I think no? that's true. Absolutely, people are going to vote in their own. The, and the difficulty has been that it's not not clear at all, even today, where their own uh, interests lie, and that's a much that's a quite a complicated uh, political discussion that uh, that we're not getting into. But well, no, but l let me. I'll get into it from a. New York perspective. Again, I'm looking at America in a very narrow sense. I'm being the devil's advocate here. Sure. I'm an investment banker with a huge uh, war chest of money I can invest all around the world. I have a Federal Reserve that'll make good any, any screw-ups that I have. I have a military second to none. I'm a pretty powerful uh, guy. I'm making lots of money in this city, and so aren't my friends. All the accountants, economists, and everybody, we're, we're, we're doing okay with this particular model. Now, maybe there's only 10 or 15 million of us, but we're the ones that shape the newspapers, shape the investment agenda, and uh, this is kind of like a new Rome. Why would I complain, and why wouldn't I want to keep it the same way? Now, and I'd say to the rest of America, if I'm these people, look, I may have came from, come from hum, humble means. Uh, uh, you can go get, get a Harvard education if you're bright enough, and we'll bring you in, and you can get in on this good game. And as far as everybody else, well, we don't know what to do. We are, we're just taking care of ourselves because we worked hard, we got educated, we took advantage of the opportunities we saw, uh, we rode the financial tiger, the military tiger, the high-tech tiger. Life is so good for us. What do we want? We don't, we don't really care about anybody. I mean, really. I mean, uh, and I think if that's the case, how do you unlock or change that for the 270 million Americans who don't get in on that game? Well, it comes down really to uh, political leadership. We have uh, good examples in these other rich democracies of what does work. Uh, with decades of experience now, what does work to produce uh, an economy where the gains from growth are broadcasted more widely and not flowing just upwards? The, the question is, do we have uh, the political ability to, uh, to, to emulate those systems? And uh, thus, thus far, we don't. And you're uh, as familiar as I am with uh, the many barriers, starting with the, uh, the architecture of, uh, of our government from the founding fathers, uh, the problem with uh, pay-to-play political systems, gerrymandering, uh, the uh, primary election systems in this country that promote uh, extremist uh, politicians. There, there are a number and, and a big agenda. Uh, the way to think of this is the following. If you were, uh, if you were President Obama, and you were looking back at your, uh, your uh, record 
and thinking about uh, how posterity might view you, he in a sense has a choice now between uh, being Abraham Lincoln or being James Buchanan. James Buchanan preceded him to uh, in the White House. And Lincoln was elected and slavery was the overwhelming issue. It was uh, tearing, tearing the country asunder. James Buchanan advised President Lincoln to allow slavery to, to spread from the Missouri River to the Pacific Ocean, that that would buy peace and he would avoid a civil war. Now, Lincoln wasn't happy with that. He could have kicked the can down the road and said that uh, uh, I'll let slavery be someone else's problem to deal with, or he, was, uh, he chose to tackle it head on. Now, leaders today face that same True. sort of choice. It's not about slavery. It's about economic uh, uh, Justice. equity. Justice. It's about what do you do about widening income disparities. And you can kick the can down the road by proposing serious and real reforms, like improving education, trying to do something about opportunity, but reforms that won't change the fundamental dynamic. Or you can propose that we adopt what other countries have found successful and effective and more widely broadcasting the game. Well, that's clear. But let me say, Obama, so, when he came uh, in... I mean, what, what President Obama needs to do, I think, is to put on the public agenda a discussion of these other techniques of co-determination and the Australian wage determination mechanism which should hopefully uh, be used in this country eventually to, to deal with the problems we've been discussing. But George, but George, Obama brought in, as soon as he was elected, the same old gang from the Clinton administrations, Larry Summers, Robert Rubin, that whole same game, the same gang came in, uh, essentially a continuation of uh, past policies. He didn't make any real radical changes and nor did he, he go after or, or try to regulate finance even through this debacle. Yes, it's now late in his, uh, in his uh, term, you know, they're, they're, they're going, after, uh, going after a few uh, culprits and they're finding a few banks, but fundamentally uh, he came in not as a reformer. He looked like a reformer, he sounded like a reformer, but essentially he brought in the traditional people that go back many years and many administrations. Your comment? Well, actually, I think he is a reformer, and he, I, I'm, uh, I think he would, if given the opportunity, uh, become quite a serious reformer. But the, the fact of the matter is that he's had, since the 2010, the most toxic political environment in America since the antebellum era. That means he's been unable, uh, he had 60 senators for uh, 11 or 12 months. He was able to enact three or four quite significant pieces of legislation, uh, the Affordable Care Act in particular, and uh, Dodd-Frank. But it's been an uphill struggle ever since. He can't even get budgets passed now. And we have these, uh, the, uh, the Republican Party is, is more interested in gridlock than in effectively governing. So he's had a horrible, horrible environment. Gridlock is, works good for, for the Boston, New York, Washington guys. That's a, that's a wonderful, gridlock is what they want.
No, I, I agree, and I think I don't think Obama agrees with this, and I think that Obama and his advisors have have been much more inclined to accept the Edmund Burke approach to government than a Thomas Paine approach. Okay. Well, uh, we could debate the particular details of what went wrong, but I think they're clear, and I think anyone who reads your book will get a perfect understanding of what did go wrong. And of course, we're trying to figure out how to unravel what went wrong. And we've concluded, I think, both you and I, I agree with you, that is a political solution that's needed. But, and of course, at the Henry George School, you know, we, we, we come from the old reforming economist, Henry George, who basically said, look, let's tax monopoly as it's found in land and resources, uh, inelastic factors of production because those are, those are taxes that you can, uh, deadweight taxes, you can, you can fi fund things with and not kill productivity and private initiative. And we would argue that uh, if we got the free trade outsourcing thing right, along with uh, those taxes, you could pretty well straighten out what's going on here. You just have to have the political will and understanding. Your comments on that? Well, the problem is uh, developing the political will, and that's why I mentioned earlier that we need to look overseas for examples of capitalist economies that are functioning better, that have a, a much more effective means of broadcasting prosperity to the, to the middle class. And we need to learn from those examples. And the difficulty, as you suggest, is the marshalling the, the political will to do that. And that's not easy, and it, it calls for very fundamental reforms. But I don't think we're going to be able to tackle our uh, economic inequities until we have first resolved the political inequity. Okay, let me give you a, a, a view of the American psyche, which I think makes it so difficult for Americans to, to understand what the problem is. I mean, if you look at how America developed with an open frontier, uh, constant influx of immigrants, and a decision to put tariffs up so they could develop ind indigenous manufacturing, you had almost a perfect storm without regulation. You had labor coming in, but you couldn't push the wages really down because they could move west on you. You had manufacturing development not overdetermined or crushed by English manufacturing. You had time to let it breathe. And in effect, you had an automatic, unthinking perfect storm that created an American colossus. So Americans didn't have to think about socially intervening in a, in a, in a mechanism that worked because of the open frontier, which was working automatically to relieve pressure, tariffs, which kept uh, indigenous development going, and a, and a country that was impervious to invasion, at least in the old days. That combination was mindless in a way, and it, and, and it occurred in almost uh, an effortless way to create a standard of living that didn't need polit political interference. And therefore, now Americans are saying, well, why can't the old America work? Your comments. That, that era gave rise to the, uh, the notion of American exceptionalism, which continues to, uh, to have a, quite a grip on, on Americans. Uh, but that's inappropriate. In fact, Europeans look at the data that we've been discussing on mobility and incomes and wages and concluded that America is exceptional now, but only 
because of its inopportunity characteristics rather than its exceptional uh, ability of folks to prosper and, and move up economically. But you see, it was difficult for Americans to all of a sudden think they have to intervene politically when it worked for them without really intervention. Well, I think the problem with uh, for, for a lot of Americans is that the, the political information they get is they don't, they're not close observers of politics. The information is quite com conflicting. They don't have clear choices. And uh, so they, uh, they simply uh, don't demand the, the, the sort of changes that, uh, that folks overseas routinely expect their political leaders to produce. Any final comments you want to make uh, or leave with our network and our people as, as, as far as choices we can make other than political? Or is it all political now, in your opinion? No, I think it's mostly political. The decisions that have to be made uh, are in the political realm, not the economic realm. Uh, we need to have a path forward, but the, uh, the barriers to economic reform are, are in Washington and in state capitals. Thank you. Thank you very much. I enjoyed the interview. And that's it for this week's episode of Smart Talk. Thank you for listening, and we hope it made you think. If you'd like to learn more about our research, check out hgsss.org. That's hgsss.org. If you'd like to listen to our content as soon as it's published, subscribe to our show. If you like our show, please leave us a rating, review, or even share with a friend. It goes a long way. Thanks again for listening, and see you next week.